This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast Network. This week, my guest is Tim Hanny, and it's, it's very hard to define or describe Tim, but I think by the end of this interview, you'll have some insights into why that's the case. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, Steve. Can you give me a little background on, on you and, and how you kind of got to where you are and, and maybe even define where it is you think you are in the world of wine? So I, I, I started my whole adventure with wine in 1966 when I was 14. Uh, my dad was the director of the Dade County Medical Association in Miami, Florida, and what little growing up I did, I did in Miami. But uh, he was responsible administratively for the medical association, including conferences and getaways and and so forth. And Miami Beach, especially being you know the the getaway hotspot and the Bahamas, we were dragged along my brothers and and myself you know, to the Fountain Blue Hotel and the Doral, all sorts of stuff. And so the whole world of fine dining was, we were in, introduced to very early, including wine. My dad was a Volnay aficionado. One of my faves, yeah. I got a, a copy of the his Schenderodeser's certificate from, the, from 1967. And then I've also got mine from decades later. And I was just fascinated by this wine thing. And I and loving food and whatever. So I actually tried to go into the wine business first, but found I had to be 18. <laughs> or I'm sorry, 21 at the time. It was pointed out to me on my my first application at Crown Liquors in in South Miami. And um, so I decided to go the culinary path and and keeping wine as a a real passion and avocation. I found the social advantages of wine early on. And when I was 17, I found that I could go into a liquor store and uh, uh, ask for a French Burgundy by name. I was limited in pronunciation to anything with two syllables. So Volnay, Pomard, et cetera, Corton. And, And if I asked for wine, no one would card me. So that gave me uh, quite a skill as a 17-year-old. And uh, the, the, the first wine I ever bought was a 1964 Corton Jabolet Verchere, three and a half bucks. A guy took my money, gave me change, said, come back again soon. And I said, you betcha. So we used to do dinners at the beach at Crandon Park, 
roast duck and escargot and all that. And just was just really hooked on the history and the, the background and the sciences and everything. And, and as my familiarization grew and as I transitioned full-time into the wine trade, the other thing that I really loved was the people I was meeting in, in the travel and going to these places. So I worked as a chef for 10 years, wound up, I dropped out of college to go, go to work in Bird's Steakhouse in Tampa. Of course, they have the largest wine list in the world. And my dad had been going there. Uh, we, we had a copy of their wine list when it was only 17 pages. I've been there as well. It's been many, many years since I've been there. Back, back then it was a, a couple of books, yeah. About 600 pages now. So anyways, uh, when I was in Tampa going to University of South Florida, my dad would find reason to have business. We'd go to Burns, get a 1959 Chabolet Verscher, Chateauneuf de Pop. That was our, our go-to. A 32-ounce porterhouse that we would split, age seven weeks. So I've never been really good at school. I'm dyslexic and I'm ADHD. And so I thought, well, I could be a chef. So I dropped out of college to the horror of my family. It wasn't hip back then. And uh, started in the kitchens at Burns. Moved back to Miami, did my pastry apprenticeship at the Sinesta Beach Hotel. And um, then continued with that, you know, working up the ranks to executive chef. And then after a series of adventures, ended up in Atlanta in 1979. And I was chef for a, a Chinese family and actually in Chinese kitchens, which is one of the things I also love is Chinese cuisine. And and uh, I, I could run a professional three-walk station, which is, is pretty good for a Western guy. I found a job being advertised for wine buyer and wine manager for a company called Happy Herman's in Atlanta. And uh, I was hired for that. And that's when everything went really head over heels for the wine end of things. And I just loved it. it. Sourcing and purchasing and negotiating, bringing in wines that had never been in the Atlanta market. Uh, many uh, like Vega Cecilia and all sorts of Italian wines that were really unknown. And Vega Cecilia back then was $16.99. And everybody's like, what are you crazy for a Spanish wine? But we were buying containers of Bordeaux. I was working with a guy who had a huge Italian portfolio, Armando Di Rome in Florence. And so I just just was happy as a clam. But we were <clears throat> the stores were also gourmet groceries, beer, liquor, and all that. So I became general manager and we had multiple stores and we had a really good business for a place called Happy Hermans and a very vibrant rare wine business also. So the dollar was really strong and we were sourcing wines out of auctions in London and floor stacks of 59 Lynch Bage and all sorts of cool stuff. I, I left the retail end of things in 1986 and became a broker and importing and representing hundreds and hundreds of, of wines and wineries. And I'd met people at Behringer and I'd been talking to Tor Kenward, who now has the the wine label Tor. And Tor said, well, come on out and work at Behringer. And I said, well, your wines kind of suck. I've just told somebody today, don't fall in love with your wines. <laughs> the best bottle of wine is the one I just sold, right? Let's focus on what our real task here is, is to sell it. 
That's right. Yeah. And and this this was actually going back quite some time before I left Happy Hermans. And it was also when Behringer was sort of on its meteoric path of improving quality. And uh, in 1988, I moved out to Napa Valley, joined Behringer as director of communications and just furthered my love of everything, you know, <laughs> and being able to hobnob and and be in the heart of it with the people I knew and and loved in the business. And at that time, I also heard they were internationalizing the Master of Wine program. So the big shift that was going on is prior to 1988, the section of the Master of Wine program on business pretty much required you needed to work in the London wine or the UK wine trade. And in 1988, they internationalized that section. And so I sent in an application. They accepted me to sit the examination. And I did that in 1989 and epically failed uh, the MW exam. I went and took a writing course to improve my communication skills. And for those of you, a lot of people aren't familiar with the difference between Master Sommelier and Master of Wine. And Master of Wine is more of a focus on the business and sciences versus specifically the hospitality end of things. Armed with my new skills at, at formulating arguments and answering the theory questions for the Master of Wine program, I passed. Yay. To this day, everything I teach, all my wine business courses, everything I do in wine and food, in perception sciences and so forth, are based on critical thinking skills. The ability to take a topic, an argument, a point of dissonance, stand back, ask more questions (laughs) instead of jumping to your foregone conclusion. If you have a cognitive dissonance, uh, basically cognitive dissonance is when you know something's wrong, but you don't know what to do about it, who to ask, or you're too fearful to say, wait a minute, I think something's wrong here. So I passed in 1990, um, and Joel Butler and I were the first two Americans to pass it. Let me kind of bring you back to um, talking about your early years. So you, your first real uh, executive experience was with Behringer, cut your teeth on that, uh, became senior exec in sales and uh, was deeply involved in the wine industry. But as we started this thing, I called you a iconoclast. An iconoclast, you called yourself a troublemaker. You've always taken a different approach to things. Um, one of the monikers that is attributed to you is the Swami of Umami, one of the people who was first to bring that concept of a, of a fifth taste, human taste capability. And you've written a couple of books. One of them I thought was really interesting called why you like the wine you like. You've written a couple of books, one in particular, Why You Like the Wine You Like, which is a completely non-traditional approach to explain and address how consumers look at, think about, taste, and describe wine. That doesn't really match with all the wine geek stuff we have on the other side of our life <laughs> in the traditional world of wine. So I passed the Master of Wine exam. So at Behringer, my my primary role became Director of International Business Development, but I also was the wine and food pairing guru. And that's according to Jancis Robinson. She's the one who coined that. And, and given my newfound curiosity about what is it that I don't know I don't know in all the in so many areas of 
of dissonance that that I could see every day in in what I do. I sat down with a group of chefs and journalists that were at Behringer for the School for American Chefs, and I said, and this is an intro to a a two-week program, and I said, normally we cover wine and food pairing here, and I'm going to start doing it differently. We're going to look at modalities of wine and food pairing and ask ourselves the questions, if this is a classic combination, what is the, the background? What's the truth about it? We know, you know, I know, anybody in the industry knows you get 10 experts together. No one can agree. And literally it can be as is polarized as this is absolutely disgusting. It's horrific to wait a minute. This is the best example of this I've ever had in my life, literally. And then you throw food into the mix and it just totally goes haywire. So, so I started on this path of answering questions and I started to work with food scientists outside the realm of wine, food and sensory scientists. And so Behringer was owned by Nestle. So I had access to all these scientists and research and data. I was a master of wine. So I had you know, people would answer my call at Manel Chemical Census Center, stuff like that. And I kept hearing this word umami come up. And it was in the context, you know, there's the five basic buckets of taste. Not So in the scientific community, it's way beyond five tastes, but they fall into sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami. I said, umami, wait a minute, I heard that word. What does it mean? And literally I was told, well, never mind. It's too hard to explain. So I sent off for a database uh, search of of, uh, articles about umami taste, got a list of 150 articles. Uh, The first one I read was seasonal glutamate variations in and palatability of sea urchin gonads. (laughs) You had me at gonads. (laughs) Who wouldn't be curious? And uh, basically, that's what uni is. It's the gonads of sea urchin. So I start, I, it started to emerge. The proposition was that umami is a primary taste, meaning it's not a combination of other tastes. It's not a combination of taste and smell, and it meets certain criteria. And so when I started to talk about this, Back in 1990, and this actually goes to 89, I wrote about umami in my, my MW papers in 1990, people would literally get angry. I'm at you know, the American Association of Culinary Pro- Professionals, or I'm in, in London doing a, a lecture or whatever, and you wouldn't believe the pushback. So this was evidence of need for disruptive innovation. And so I, I, I kept... I was, I was creating a, a long, long list of mentors, uh, most of which I keep in touch with today. And so in, in my book, there's a, an appendix that was written by the scientist who he and his wife were responsible for identifying the human receptor responsible for umami taste. And that was kind of the clincher. And of course, now it's u- ubiquitous. So, you know, you go back. The concept goes back to 1866 in Switzerland when a guy named Rittenhausen uh, identified glutamate as, as a taste compound. 
in 1908. As a scientist in, in Japan identified it and proposed it formally as a fifth separate taste. And then his uh, colleagues researched the role of nucleotides. So umami is the primary taste of glutamate, which is also synergized by nucleotides to create that taste. The best way to, to actually get a demonstration of it is take a raw mushroom and take a bite. Take the same mush, uh, mushroom from the same package that's been uh, cooked in the microwave 30 seconds and taste it. And the glutamic acid has been converted to glutamate. All right. Now back to this wine and food thingy I'm doing at Behringer. I had already discovered that there's something called sensory adaptation that occurs so that when you have a sip of wine and you have salt and try the wine again in just a tiny, tiny bit, salt suppresses bitterness. Uh, add a little bit of lemon juice. So it's Robert Mondavi coined it Tim's tequila trick and uh, was a big, big fan of my, my work and my research, even though I was at a competing winery. And everybody who should try this, if you haven't, tannic red wine, take a sip, a little salt and lemon, uh, yell, ay, 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 ay. Uh, lick the salt and lemon and try the wine again. And it really reduces the perception of bitterness and astringency. So I was at the point, we knew that sweetness in food will amplify bitterness, astringency, and it will reduce the perception of fruitiness and whatever. So so sweet, it's brush teeth, drink orange juice. And that, that's sensory adaptation, one example. We also knew that there were certain things that were suppressing and, and it discovered the, the tequila trick, but something was in the food that was causing a negative reaction with the wine and as I learned more and more about umami, that emerged as the culprit. So when you have high amount of umami in your food, it will have the same adaptative quality as sweetness. And high umami food makes wine more bitter, more astringent. You'll find everywhere in French cuisine, in Italian cuisine, the use of salt and acidity in sauce bordelaise, in anything a la Provençal, in Bistecca alla Fiorentina, and it's demonstrable. So, so in, in, in addition to being a hack of, of wine lore and trivia and history, uh, I'm also really knowledgeable about cuisine of France, you know, prior to World War II and, and stuff like that. So the disruptive innovation came in proposing that maybe we rethink this whole wine and food thing and talk about reactivity and what you can expect. And then instead of, oh, this is a perfect match with, without trying it, without knowing it, then I started a list of things to research. <laughs> well, what about? It, it ended up creating more questions than answers. And that's fundamentally what I do in that area now is research reactivities. But there was a wild card. And so you're you're with, with somebody smelling a wine and somebody saying, oh my God, this smells so much like I can't even stand it. It's like, well, what world are you living in? And you've seen this also, you know, you're, you're trying to describe wines and somebody's coming up with these things and you're going, where in the world did you come up with that? So in my research with, with the interactions, it also introduced me to perceptual individualism. 
Perceptual individualism is what makes us each different in the colors we see, the intensity of light, sound, taste, smell, touch, and all these things. And I, I sort of was looking at things kind of topically and whatever, then ran into Dr. Linda Bartoshuk. And Linda is the one who coined the term super taster. Now, I need to clarify, we're trying to eliminate that word, not the concept. And Linda agrees. She's become one of my mentors and a good friend. And, and basically, the, the, the breakthrough for me in this was there's a group of compounds called uh, tiaurea and a number of forms of it. And basically, 100 years ago, it was spilled in a lab. And people were noticing that, oh, my God, there's this disgusting bitter. I can't stand it. There was some of the people in lab complaining, oh, well, it's bitter, but you're really overreacting. And then there was a group of people going, what are you guys talking about? Nothing, right? So that really led me to, well, how different are we? How, how different is our perception? And this is always open to revision. And again, I, I'm constantly updating my information and my, my materials. But as a basis, it's fair to say some people have fewer than 500 taste buds, but other people have over 11,000. And now there's identification of specific genes. And this is the work that uh, Linda Bartoshuk was doing. It wasn't wine research. It was genetics. And she was the one that was able to find the genetic SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, responsible that then could predict whether you would be hypersensitive, which is the word we're using, sensitive or tolerant, and still use you know, her words, we all live in our own unique individual sensory world. And we, as an industry, we've really got to get this. So it's somebody drinking Moscato who loves Moscato and wants it with their steak. They're going to love it with their steak. And by the way, that's equally as traditional in Tuscany as, as having red wine. And if you go back historically, they didn't have these big ass tannic red wines. The staple, Chianti, was by law diluted with white wine. It had Caniolo added to the Sangiovese. And so the wine, the, the whole premise we've come up with for wine and food matching is a fraud. Not, not flawed, a fraud. I think that's... Oh, and flawed. Yeah, well, flawed, but it's more than flawed. It's, I, I like your comment about fraud because if everybody we're, we're all following the lead of somebody else and, and spouting or adding to the the misunderstanding of what these terms mean i was at, at an, uh, an event at tales of the cocktail and a buddy of mine was giving a presentation he's a chemist and he did the uh i don't want to use the word uh, so the uh what, what was the word that you used the, the prop test yeah yeah so you people were easily identifiable as someone who was really uh affronted by the, the bitterness, someone who could tolerate and someone who couldn't even taste it. And it was clear as a bell. Well, if it was that strong and it was that distinctive, how can any of us talk about a wine and its taste and flavor and communicate in any, any way? You've come up with a concept called Venotype, kind of a riff on phenotype. We all know from biology, well, not everybody knows, but you know, I remember <laughs> from biology. So how did that develop from what you're what you're talking about? When when I was writing uh, why you like the wines you like, I was uh, doing 
very in-depth uh, research with Dr. Virginia Udermullen at Cornell University. She's now retired. And Virginia is absolutely brilliant, speaks four languages impeccably, a board-certified pediatrician, and she did her medical school in Paris in French. So that's how fluent she is. And uh, Virginia occupies the space where if you're a wine expert, she's basically trailer trash because she loves white Zinfandel. She loves Moscato. And, you know, it, and this is part of the dissonance. Wait a minute. She's not, she's not this stereotype. She speaks languages. She's brilliant. She has a, you know, lots of money. And, but if a wine's over 11 or 12% alcohol, the trigeminal burn from, from alcohol is intolerable to her. Wines that are over 11% alcohol, dry and tannic, are just flat out disgusting. And this is why she was so great for the research, because she represents about 40% of the total available Caucasian market, France, Italy, Spain, uh, South America, Australia, you name it. And she's not the cliche. She's so with her work, she actually had done a study of, and this is how I found her. She published a study of prop sensitivity. So whether you're hypersensitive, sensitive, or tolerant to uh, professional roles in the hospitality industry. Hmm. And, and a high disproportion of hypersensitive people who are in the front of the house and are the chefs. The people who are less tolerant or more tolerant are running the businesses. They're the bottom line oriented. So what was emerging is there are certain personality traits and behaviors associated with where we are on the spectrum of sensory sensitivity. Different spectrum than the, what is commonly used, the autism spectrum in this case, the spectrum of... Which is just an, an extension because, frankly, Virginia is, is one foot in the autism spectrum. And then it goes even further. So the spectrum isn't just for the autistic. My current project, it's called the Perception Project. From Einstein to you name it, it is generally accepted by the scientific community that perception is not reality. Perception is not an individual's reality. That perception is an interpretation of energy. <laughs> so sound doesn't exist as we th think it exists. So that's the answer to the, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? It makes waves, but it's not a sound until it's perceived. Yeah. And, and this, was, this was one of those, and this is my life, duh, or wow, or mind blown. And so, so if, what, what the venotyping does is it enables conversations with people to get a sense of the world they live in before we start jumping to, oh, this wine was rated this, or this goes best with this dish, and without even talking to the, the people we serve in retail and in restaurants and online and in education. And then as part of a collective delusion, there are also efforts to validate the delusion with pseudoscience. Right. 
Yeah, well, that's like we were talking before about this whole thing about the, the tongue. We all remember this image of the tongue showing where the receptors are in the tongue. And that's been disproven 40, 50, 60 years ago. You still see it in textbooks and people still think that that is true and accurate, and it's not. And the consequences of this is insecurity and doubt. Here's the key to the whole thing, that your insecurity and doubt. Okay, I love that, that concept that people somehow think that somebody else knows more, therefore they themselves are wrong because they perceive it differently. And I think we can all agree that we've all been doing this for so many years, we've just created a monster of alienating more people from the wine industry than embracing them or welcoming them. And the harder we try to convince them of that, the more damage we do. So it, it's, it's like the electrical engineering's engineers. My son's an electrical engineer now. And, you know, his brain just works differently. And, and, and so imagine, you know, you go into a store to buy a VCR, an electrical engineer saying, oh, it's simple to set this clock. <laughs> and you walk away even more befuddled than when you started. I have no idea what language that person. So what's happening with wine education, with wine and food pairing, with the best intentions, the more you learn, the more you become part of the problem that really needs to be solved. How can we be better stewards for the market we're serving, not just in our own heads trying to argue, well, I objectively taste wine. No, you don't. It's impossible. <laughs> it, just that you're an individual means it's subject to your interpretation your sensory system. And we're going to talk a little bit about sensory systems, which is your genetics and physiology, your receptors, sort of your heart, you know, your sensory hardware, your neural network and neurotransmission and, and sending of information from a, a receptor to your brain, and, and then back again for actions and behaviors. So one of the things when you're doing the prop tasting, you can ask it, don't anybody say anything, but you can see in the response to the prop, people are disgusted and someone sitting next to them is like quizzical, like what, right? And then the third part of the, the, uh, the sensory system is uh, the psychology of it all and brain plasticity. So as we become expert, where our brain is adapting when we acquire a taste, what we usually are inferring is that something became more or less important or represented an aspiration or an achievement and rewired our brain so that it's receiving positive validation of these receptions of this. So I didn't used to like that, but I learned to like that. It's us that don't understand, that, which is a tragedy. One of, one of the most, one of the easiest of, of myriad examples is cilantro. All you got to do on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, oh, I love this dish with cilantro. What does it go with? And you'll get people going, it goes with nothing. Cilantro is this horrible, disgusting and then we'll get all these well-intentioned, smart, educated people. Oh, I didn't used to like it, but you'll learn to like it. So we try to force people into things that they are genetically never going to like. 
we think that it's because we experienced a certain way or we learned to adapt that everybody should. And, Ju- and Julia Child had the, it's a OR6A2 uh, genetic SNP cluster and Julia Child had it. And Sage fits in the same same thing, cilantro and Sage. Yeah, she, she had that reaction to cilantro and uh, during an interview with Larry King, she actually was asked, is there anything you can't stand? And she said, cilantro, it's disgusting. If it's in my food, I'll send it back and ask, why didn't you put that on the menu? Some of us find it disgusting. And I'll try to pick it out if I can and throw it on the floor. But otherwise, I can't stand it. So her palate wasn't mature. She was ignorant. You tell me. Right. No, in, in that case, clearly, I, being one of those people, it's clear as a bell. But like like Frank Benjamin Franklin said, I love this line. He said, it's funny how when you're riding in the mist, everything around you is clear, but everybody else seems to be enshrouded in fog. I wonder, wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, that's the, the basis of, of, of my work. Uh, outside of teaching line business, and you know, I'm on faculty at Washington State and Linfield Universities. So there's a pragmatic end of what I do in the industry. But this is my real passion. What makes us different? And how can we communicate more clearly and more meaningfully in a way that attracts and engages people? And you, you hear about people in tasting rooms and wine clubs, our churn rate's too high. And how can we better connect with consumers? Well, it's us that's got to change. And, and that's my message to the industry. It's going to require a serious effort out from under the cloud of delusions and pseudosciences that now stand as, quote unquote, the truth or reality, and they're nothing of the sort. So the challenge, I, I've seen it become a couple of words that have been used in the, the world of wine geekdom that I live in, minerality and salty. And you know, people try to explain to me, well, you know, the, the, the plant absorbs the, the, the minerals. Uh, they absorb a, a water solution that contains certain molecules, but it's not where it's grown that that flavor is grown in these stones, so it tastes stony. Uh, there, there isn't that direct correlation. And yet, once again, as you were saying, there's a billion people telling this story, people nodding their heads, minerality, you taste the stone? I mean, I... I... Yeah, well, you know, it's a a great example of how we make shit up and and then steadfastly refuse. Now, if you smell the stones, if you smell something like that, science shows it's not that. Don't confuse me with the facts, though. (laughs) Well, nobody, nobody wants, you know, la, 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 put your fingers in your ears. The word terroir itself prior to the 1960s was the worst thing you could say about a wine because it didn't mean soil. It meant soiled. So it was the smell of poop. It was unclean. It was infected. And to say a wine was a van de terroir meant that it was so out of bounds with contamination and Britannomyces and in, in spoilage that it was unpalatable. And, and then trying to make wine easier to understand, somebody decided, oh, let's start writing books about terroir based on a false interpretation of what it means. Because 
Ter means soil, uh, but it also means earth and earthy and soiled. And so what happened was there, there started to be this mounting mound of BS that, that is trying to explain something that is, is BS. <laughs> okay, but wait a second. Let me, let, me, let me play the devil's advocate here. So the entire, well, fine wine industry, it seems, has kind of jumped on the terroir bandwagon. And by definition, if you think about it, the state-produced wine is unique. Nobody else can produce those grapes on that ground if you're already on that ground and you're making the wine from it. Nobody else could do it. Now, is your wine sufficiently similar to your neighbor's wine? Is, are the soils the same there? Maybe similar, but probably not the same. We see that certainly in New York State. The variation in uh, soil type within a given plot is just extraordinarily diverse from clay to stones. And you can't make general assumptions about that. So think for a second, remove the word soil from, from, from the definition and think about it as territory. Okay. So territory. All right. Uh, by the de definition, does every wine in the world, is, is every wine in the world thus some expression of terroir of the conditions of where it's grown soil exposure moisture altitude well and, and again soil isn't part of the terroir it, it's a part of the equation but it's it's overemphasized i was going to jump to the the parallel word that's used more in france than anywhere else is typicity the idea that the wines grown in a certain area taste the same I think that's an oversimplified view of it, but that uh, Burgundian Chardonnay is different from Chardonnay produced in California. All of them? <laughs> well, uh, that's what I'm going. That's kind of a big statement to make. How is it vinified? Is it in, in steel or oak? And it makes fundamental differences in the perception of oak and the concept of vanilla and whole thing about lactic acid and malic acid. We all know. To, to cut it short, yeah. do you think I could take five wines or six wines, three from California, three from Burgundy and fool you? Mm, uh, whether you could, you might be able to, but I have been in a, in a tasting, which I thought was really interesting. We were in uh, Vienna and Willie Klinger, who used to run the Austrian wine market. I know Willie, yeah. Guillaume de Glace, who ran the expo at the time. They did a blind tasting for about 200 people. We were all in the room. My wife was with me. So here's all these wine experts, right? That's the only people who came there. And we did blind tastings. Most people couldn't identify Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Which is, is about as distinctive as, as you're going to get, or at least that genre of wines. And I would kind of admit it to my wife. Yeah, we're all kind of a bunch of bullshit artists. And without belaboring it, the fallibilities of the human sensory system are so great. And the hyperbole of these glaring differences that aren't there in that combination just leads to it's all bullshit. Yeah, I love that's a that, that's a great way of looking. You boil it all down, and that's what it's all about. It starts on a flawed assumption, and then proceeds into sublime craziness. To exactly and build it and and dig our heel, heels in. And yet we've done that. Okay, all right, all right. So. How do we get out of this mess? And is that what you were trying to do with venotyping and with some of the things that, that you're doing? How do we make wine? Because people like us are influential in how wine is communicated to 
uh, people who, who drink it. How do we change that? Well, it's really tough because collective delusions have all sorts of dynamics associated with them. If you're part of the co- collective, whether you agree with what the, the collective is actually saying, you will lie to them and even to yourself just to be part of the collective. Gee, I can think of a political analogy there, but I'm not <laughs> going to go there. But we keep going. Yeah. If you can stand back, one of the things that uh, inhibits this to the greatest degree is our own willingness to be human and fallible. And especially if we've attained some degree of an expertise and we start to make shit up and then people nod their heads in agreement. He must know what he's talking about because he sure seems to be and he's got the education of the street cred. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so it's, and every collective delusion has a consequence of not adhering to the principles. Now in my book, this is actually a, in the, there's a chapter on collective delusions and what they are and how they're defined and so forth. And we use the example, remember how people used to think the world was flat? I don't personally remember it, but yes. And, but you've seen, you've seen things, you've read about primitives and pagans used to think this. And the consequence was if you sail off the edge of the world, what, what's there? Demons and monsters. Right. And lots of pins with angels on the heads of. Exactly. So so here's this delusion. The earth is flat. People used to think it. There was a consequence if, if you sailed off the edge of the earth. All right. I got a call from uh, my co-writer of the book. And the reason my book got written was because of Harvey Posert. And I think you know of Harvey. I know of him, yes. Senior Vice President of Communications, Mondavi, created the Napa Valley, 45 years in the industry, and cannot drink dry wine. He is a sweet vino type. He has so many taste buds, the alcohol, etc. Okay. He had hooked me up with, with Sarah, uh, Sarah Paulson, and she called me one day. And she said, Tim, you've got to see this. I said, what is it? She said, here, read this article. And it was an essay on how our example of the the world is flat is a collective delusion is a collective delusion. (laughs) There is no evidence whatsoever. People can research this. You can find the data. Nobody ever thought the world was flat. Actually. So this is just a modern construct of how we think they thought. In the Victorian era, people started to show how others were heathens and pagans Ah. and, and things like they thought the world was flat. But before the Victorian era, there is zero evidence of any community, tribe, culture thinking the world is flat. So a quick example for everybody to do that hits right at the heart of wine and food and so forth. Red wine goes with red meat because cows are big. You hit them with a tractor. There's red everywhere. <laughs> you get, your wine should be served in a big glass, right? And then we've got the, the pseudoscience. Oh, the fat of the beef smooths out, coats your mouth and smooths out the tannin. All right, everybody, tonight, pour a glass of strong red wine. Cook a really nice prime choice steak. Grill it, broil it, I don't care what the hell you do, but don't season it, nothing on it, nothing. And if if you're cooking it in butter, use unsalted butter. Try the wine, try a bite of the fat, try the wine, the wine gets more bitter and more astringent. The 
the really? basic premise is completely flawed and the opposite. And then you've got the idea, well, the proteins, because of, of, of known uh, chemical reactions of protein. Okay, yeah. <laughs> WSET, Wine and Spirits Education Trust, is adopting my principles. They've taken the credit to me out of it, but they're restoring that. So they are now teaching interactions and teaching a modified version of, of venotypes. Okay. Mm -hmm. What we need to do as an industry is, number one, recognize our own fallibilities, our own sensitivities, and get that people are not necessarily experiencing the same things. We've got to learn to communicate on a whole new level that consists of a conversation with people. What do you like? <laughs> Without fear of attacking that person, which is inherent, it's, it's built into the system. Oh, if, well, I like Moscato. When we do research, the hardest thing we, we have to confront is getting people to not lie about their preferences. Right, right, right. Okay, and the title of the book again? Why You Like the Wines You Like, Changing the Way the World Thinks About Wine. If somebody wanted to buy a copy, where would they go? They would go to uh, Amazon, either put in my name or Why You Like the Wines You Like. And... Um... If people would like to get into touch with in, get in touch with you directly, are you uh, would you share your email address with us? Absolutely, it's Tim at Tim Hanai T I M H A N N I dot com. Okay, great. So we're talking this week with, with this week with Tim. Well, I always thought it was Hanny, but uh... now that was the delusion. <laughs> Uh, we could talk on forever about this subject, but you know, in, in my mind, Tim's uh, kind of the reigning iconoclast in the wine industry, challenging some of the the standards and the norms that we've all kind of been, uh, you want to say, suckered into, but uh, you know, kind of fallen into. Um, and it probably there there is a right time to change the way we in the industry talk about wine to be more inclusive of people uh, than. Uh, the generation that uh, I'm leaving to you people. <laughs> so once again, a big thank you to uh, Tim Hanai. Thanks. For sharing his time with us today. And this is Steve Ray. And we'll see you next week for another edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast. Hi guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.